Great. So um, again, if you haven't been here before, or you've um, fallen asleep before we got to the sermon, or you've uh, you've ignored what the whole um, church has been about, uh, for the last few weeks we've been going through the book of Philippians, um, and you can't help but read the book of Philippians without seeing the incredible joy that Paul has as he as he writes to this church that he planted. Um, the, Every single passage in this book is all about pointing to Christ and saying, no matter what happens around you, there is a greater joy that can be found in Christ. And so through these last few weeks, we've been seeing the outworkings of, of that, where, where we can find joy in the outworkings of the gospel. So in other words, where we can find joy in the community that the gospel shapes uh, where we can find joy in uh, the ministry of others. Uh, it was a real challenge last week, as Stephen reminded us, that you know, other churches preaching the gospel are not an enemy. They're actually uh, brothers and sisters on the same uh, mission as us, even if they do it slightly differently. Um, if they're preaching the same gospel, uh, that's something to be, to be joyful about um, and not to feel like we're in competition. And so we've seen all of these other sources of joy, but all of them take their root in this one, um, in this passage. This passage explains why it is that we can find joy in all of the other things that we've seen. This, if we don't get um, what Paul is saying in this passage, then we cannot find joy in the community, um, in, in, in the church. We can't find joy in the fact that the gospel is preached um, in other places. We can't find joy um, even in the midst of suffering unless we really, really get what he's saying um, in, this, uh, in this section. So um, if you're a note taker, I'm afraid I don't have an outline tonight. What we're going to do is simply just walk through the passage got 11 verses, and we're going to see exactly what they tell us and how we can apply those to our lives. So um, sit comfortably. So we dive straight in. Let, let, let's get started on, on verse 1. So he says, finally, my brothers. The funny thing is he, he says finally, and we're only halfway through the book. Um, so it reminds, us of, reminds me of sermons from my youth, like in conclusion, and then 40 minutes later, we finally get to the conclusion. He says, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So again, Paul is calling them to rejoice, but this time he adds something. He says, rejoice in the Lord. And I love what he says next. He's basically saying, you think I'm getting sick of telling you to rejoice? No, I'm going to say it again and again and again and again. And if you, you know, look a little bit further in the book of Philippians, he says it again. He says, rejoice. And again, I tell you, rejoice. So Paul sees joy as completely part of what it is to be a Christian. For him to believe the gospel and not be joyful doesn't work. It, it, it's, it, it cannot happen. And if, if you read through the Psalms, the Psalms are full of the psalmist declaring his joy that he has in the Lord and encouraging the others to rejoice. And he even speaks to his own soul sometimes, saying, soul, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. No matter what is happening, rejoice in the Lord. So he doesn't get sick of it. Paul says, I'm going to tell you again and again and again. And he also says, it, it's a safe thing 
for you to hear me say this, because where there is a lack of joy in the gospel, that is where sin grows. That is where we become cynical. That is where we become full of pride. That is where hearing the fact that a church down the road is preaching the gospel, um, that without the joy that we find in the gospel, that will necessarily lead us to feel like there's a competition there. A lack of joy leads to things growing in the church and things growing in our own hearts that have no place at all if we claim to believe the gospel. So he calls us to be joyful. And for us, does that mean taking a few steps, you know, the, the, the five-step plan to be more joyful? Does that mean reading a few books that give us the, you know, the seven keys to be happy? There's a, there's a, a, um, a man in, in, in America, very, very famous on, in the Christian world and outside the Christian world, um, T.D. Jakes, and, and he was on, a, uh, on the Steve Harvey show. I don't watch the Steve Harvey show. It was just like a, uh, an article that I saw. And uh, he, here is what he says. Here is where we can find joy according to T.D. Jakes. So here it is. First one, own happiness. No, own your own happiness. Don't make other people make you feel bad. Don't make other people make you feel, you know, get you, get you down. Own your own happiness. Second one, challenge your own story. Are you saying bad things about yourself? Well, stop it. Say good things about yourself. Third one, enjoy the journey, not the destination. You know, look around you. Stop, pause, listen to the birds. Don't always focus on, on the place where you're trying to get. And Paul's going to have a few things to say about that later. Fourth one, make relationships count. So he says, own your own happiness. Don't count on others. And then he says, count on others to find your joy. And fifth one is balance work with play. So is, is, that, is that how we find joy? Now, some of those things can help. Some of those things can help us, you know, feel a bit happier on a, on a day when we're feeling a bit down. But that is not where we find joy. No, the joy that Paul calls us to is a joy that is completely rooted in what Christ has done. It's a, it's a joy that says, taste and see that the Lord is good. It's a joy that calls us to delight in God no matter what we're feeling, to constantly grow closer to Him and see more and more that Christ is truly the greatest treasure. We need, to, we need to speak to, our, to ourselves. We need to speak to our own souls and say, bless the Lord. Be joyful in the Lord, even though the world around might be going into complete chaos. Because Christ is, is the only one who can provide that sustainable joy that the whole world is looking for. Everyone is looking for joy. Everyone is looking to be happy, to, to have a sustainable joy. And here, Paul is telling us, if you want that, as everyone does, look to Christ. That joy is not going to be found, that ultimate joy, that the highest joy is not going to be found in a job. It's not going to be found in your, your um, new position. It's not going to be found in your husband or your wife, in your friends, in your intelligence, in anything like that. It's not going to be found in comparing yourselves to others. None of these things can sustain our joy. So he moves on. He says, 
So he said, it's safe for you to, rem- for me to remind you to be joyful. And here's why. He says, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for those who mutilate the flesh. So Paul is saying he wants, he, he wants them to be joyful and to preserve that joy, they're going to have to be careful of certain people who are coming into the church, who are, who are speaking to their community and giving them a different message than the one that Paul was giving them. So what, it, what seems to be happening is that um, the Jewish people in Philippi were looking at the, these Gentiles who believed the gospel and claimed that they, you know, they were saved, they were part of God's people, and they were saying, no, that, that's not what you have to do to be part of God's people. To be part of God's people, you need to have you know, that external sign, you need to be circumcised. That, that's the way, that's the sign that you're part of God's people. They, they, they believed and in the Old Testament, you know, rightly so, from Genesis 17, you know, God had told Abraham, um, when a boy is born into your community after the eighth day, have him circumcised. And that is an external sign that you are set apart to be my people. But what had happened is that they had forgotten the, the fact that all these external signs were meant to point to inward transformation. They'd forgotten that you know, the fact that they were circumcised was not truly what set them apart. What truly set them apart was a changed heart that was joyful, that rejoiced in God. And they'd also failed to see that what that sign was actually pointing to was Christ, who is the, who is the source of true joy. Now, as a church in the 21st century, we're not, we're probably not at risk of people coming in and challenging us with that issue, but maybe we do that for others. Maybe we are adding things on to what it means to be a Christian that shouldn't be there. Maybe we are adding signs on to what it is to be a Christian that really shouldn't be there. And we rob ourselves and we rob others of joy when we insist that things are, that are not really part of what it is to be a Christian or that don't define what it is to be a Christian we rob ourselves of joy when we add those things on. So maybe for us, is, um, is church attendance a sign that we are part of God's people? No, not, not without inward transformation, not without a changed heart that rejoices in God. Is reading the Bible? No, no it isn't. Not without inward transformation that takes our heart and points it to Christ. And we could go on and on about these things that we think make us Christians, and yet we forget that all of those things, what they're supposed to help us do, what reading our Bibles and what's, what joining together as God's people is supposed to do is point our hearts to Christ and make us more like Him and make us rejoice in Him. So if we, if we keep going on, Paul, Paul then says, look, this is what they're saying, but, but here's what the gospel says. He says, verse 3, For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. So he's just said, they put confidence in the flesh, but we don't as Christians. So you want to know what the true people of God look like? You, you want to know what really sets them apart? What, really, what is the sign of really belonging to God's people? Well, he says it right there. He says, we are the ones who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. 
So if you think about when, when Jesus was on, on earth walking amongst, um, walking amongst us or you know, whoever was around 2,000 years ago, when he's at the well with the Samaritan woman, we, if you've grown up in church, if, you, if you're a church person, you, you know the story. And the Samaritan woman um, f- figures out that he's a prophet um, and she asks him, well, now the Samaritans say that we should worship here but you Jews say that we should worship here. Now, now which one is right? I, I, I want to know where I'm supposed to worship God. So which one is right? And Jesus says, in, so it's John 4, 23. He says, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. So what Paul is saying is exactly this. He's saying what really sets the people of God apart is the fact that the Spirit of God lives in us and is leading us to a life of worship and surrender to God. What the law did is it revealed our desperate need for the Spirit of God to do that in us. Just read Romans 1 to 3. What Paul is saying there in Romans, he's saying the law, what the law was really there to do was not to save you. It was to reveal that you couldn't be saved unless Christ took your place. So the first mark, the, the first sign that we really belong to God is that the Spirit of God lives in us and points us to the joy that we can find in Christ and produces that joy That's what truly sets us apart. No external sign should do that. And the second thing he says, we are the ones who boast in Christ Jesus. What do the true people of God look like? Well, they're the ones who don't boast in themselves. They're the ones who don't boast in their own achievements. They're the ones who don't boast in their church attendance or in how much they read the Bible or any other thing that we might boast in. They're the ones who boast in Christ Jesus because they know that to boast in themselves is useless before God. We boast in Christ Jesus and him, in Him only because we would be unable to be set apart without Jesus. And so I wonder, what, what do outsiders see when they come in to our church? What do outsiders see? What do non-Christians see when they meet us at work or wherever we spend um, our week? Is it obvious that our lives are being led by the Spirit? Is it obvious that we boast in something so much bigger than ourselves? Is that what people see? Is that what people say about us? Now, they won't put those words to it. But do they see that we live differently and that we live a humble life because we know that we can only boast in Jesus Christ? Is it obvious that we are being led by the Spirit of God. If we look back on our lives, if we look back on since we've become a Christian, do we see that the Spirit of God has been, has been producing fruit in us and that we have more joy in Christ than we did um, before? We would spare ourselves so much um, anxiety, so much pride, so much anger if we humbled ourselves and realized that we are only the people of God because God himself has done that work in us. We are only the people of God because 
the Spirit of God has made us the people of God, and we are only the people of God because of who Jesus Christ is. We have nothing but the sovereign work of God to boast in. And this is what makes the, the next um, three verses very, very strange. So if you look down at verse, verses four to six, Paul says, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Paul decides, right, you think you can boast in what you've done? Let's play that game. He plays their game for a minute and lists off his own achievements. Basically what he's saying is if we were saved by works, if we were saved by what we could do, I would be the first one through the gates of heaven. No one would beat me there. If, if his opponents who are doing, what, doing that work in the church of Philippi, trying to get them to, to be circumcised, if they knew um, this list of achievements, they would fall down at, at um, Paul's feet and just think he was the best person in the world. Just their hero. He was circumcised in the right time. That's, that was, that's, that's normal. He was born into the people of God. He was born into the tribe of Benjamin, the tribe that gave Israel their first king, that Paul was named after, you know, Saul. And the tribe of Benjamin was known, as, known to be a fierce tribe in battle. He's a Hebrew of Hebrews, probably meant that he was raised speaking Aramaic instead of Greek. Greek wasn't seen as, um, as, a, uh, as the language of, you know, the true people of God. He was born to a Pharisee. He himself was a Pharisee. He was passionate about destroying anyone that didn't believe what he believed, especially those who talked about Jesus. Absolutely blameless when it came to obeying the moral and sacrificial laws. So Paul is saying, if you want to play that game, I win, but with a landslide victory. And maybe we can be tempted to do this, compare ourselves to others and list off our achievements. Born into a brilliant, uh, rich family in good standing. Parents were high up in the church. Parents were you know, high up in whatever company they may have worked in or, or something like that. Comparing ourselves to make it seem like we, we, we're way better than that, you know, new person that's just come to church is, is you know, just, just seems a bit off. They, they don't really look or smell like uh, like a Christian. They don't really look or smell like what a what a member of the people of God should look like. And so, what Paul is doing is he's not being arrogant. He's saying, "Look at my list of achievements." And I'm the one saying that we should not boast in the flesh. So clearly, you who have nowhere near that list of achievements, you can definitely not boast in your own um, achievements. And again, he's doing this so that the people of Philippi can rejoice in Christ because he knows, and we know, everyone knows, 
If we're honest with ourselves, everyone knows that pride and arrogance and comparing ourselves to others never produces joy. It never produces joy. What it produces is anger and anxiety or it produces pride because we actually think that we're better than everyone else. But the biggest reason it doesn't produce joy is because of what it does in our relationship with God. And this is what, um, this is sort of the second bit of the passage where um, Paul kind of comes to the meat of what he's trying to say. So verse seven, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So all of these things, that before he knew Christ were gained to him, all of these things that made him a really, really important and really um, good person in his own eyes and in the eyes of the world become complete loss, become completely useless to him. Paul isn't saying, my life before was pretty good, but now I've found something even better. Kind of like a job promotion. I I was a Pharisee, but now I preach the gospel. Being a Pharisee was good, but preaching the gospel is better. No, he's saying, before, I count all that stuff as rubbish, completely useless. I count it as complete loss. I lost those years. That is lost to me. I wasted that time. I lost out. And he gladly loses it all because he sees what truly matters. He says, for the sake of Jesus Christ. Not as if Christ had something to gain out of it. He's not saying that, well, Jesus wants me to follow him and I really like what my life is like, but I'm going to sort of begrudgingly follow Jesus, but still kind of stay attached to what my life was like before. Stay attached to that pride I had. Jesus is not looking for our begrudging submission. No, it's a joyful shedding of everything that came before for the sake of Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus is looking um, for from us. Not begrudging submission because, oh, Jesus says I have to, I guess I will. No, what he's looking for is joyful submission because we know that everything else that pulls us away from Christ is loss. Again, Jesus himself said, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And I wonder, do we look at our old life as loss? Do we look at our life before we knew Christ and think, I really lost out during that time? Do we look at our sin and say, while I was sinning, when, when, I, when I loved that sin, I was really losing out because there was something that makes that lost, that makes it look like rubbish, that makes it rubbish. And we need to pray that the Holy Spirit will, will reveal that to us. We need to pray that the Holy Spirit will show us the incredible treasure that we have in Jesus Christ so that everything else that we have in life that leads us away from him will be lost to us. And he goes on, he, 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 just, keeps, he just keeps getting to new heights in what he's trying to say. And verses eight and nine, he says, indeed, I count, 
Notice before he said, I counted, and now he says, I count. He, he's, he carries on counting everything as lost. He says, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So all things, his reputation, his titles, his achievements are rubbish. And rubbish is a very soft translation for what Paul was actually saying. They're rubbish compared to knowing Christ and receiving righteousness that comes through faith. And this is a really uh, difficult uh, doctrine. The, the fancy word for it is imputed righteousness, the imputed righteousness of Christ. What it basically means to use an, uh, uh, an illustration is criminal records being swapped. So Paul has shown that to try to rely on anything other than Christ before God is useless because we cannot come before God this way. He says, that the, he says I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth, the, the, this highest treasure that there is of knowing Christ. Anything that blinds him to Christ is pointless rubbish and must be done away with. And the loss that he suffered means nothing compared to knowing Christ, his Lord, not as some impersonal deity, but his Lord. And he wants to be found in Christ, to be found in Christ. That, that, what it means for us to be found in Christ is that when God looks down on us, when he looks at us, he sees Christ. Because the thing is, we have too many allegations stacked up against us. Our criminal record is just beyond belief. And so, if we try to come before God the judge that way, with our own criminal record, we end up on the wrong side of God, and that is a, not a good place to be. So instead of allowing this to happen, God has provided a substitute for us. All, again, all of Romans 1 to 3, you know, when you go home, re read it, all of Romans 1 to 3 is saying this in greater detail. What it's saying is it's useless trying to declare ourselves righteous. So we swap places Christ swaps places with us. His criminal record is given to us while ours is put on him. So we are declared right before God. Instead of being orphans, we become sons and daughters. Instead of being guilty, we become innocent. Instead of being lost, we are found. Instead of being sinful, we are sinless. Instead of being God-haters, we are God-lovers. Instead of being dead, we're alive. And instead of being rebels, we are counted as faithful servants of the God of the cosmos. Now, if, there isn't, if this isn't a true source of joy, nothing else is. If we don't count it as joy to lose all things for Christ, 
in view of what we've just read, then nothing else matters. We cannot be declared righteous by anything else than Christ. God made Jesus become our sins so that we could become righteous before God. Another way of putting this is the way that um, David Platt, uh, an American pastor, put it. He said that um, what will happen when we become before God, when we come before God, is that God will examine our criminal record. God will examine our life and will say, I have absolutely no record of anything ever going wrong in your life. I have no record of anything going wrong in your life. So why wouldn't we count all things as loss? If we try to rely on ourselves, then what happens when we, when we come before God is that he says, no, I have a lot. I have a huge record of stuff that went wrong in your life and no one has paid for it yet. But instead, we're swapped with Christ and we are clothed in the perfect, perfect righteousness that comes from him. I have no record of anything ever going wrong in your life. This is the highest source of joy that we can ever have, being found in Christ, being hidden by Christ. And then Paul finishes with the last two verses, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So that he's showing to what extent he wants to know Christ as his Lord. He wants to know the power of his resurrection. He wants to share his sufferings. He wants to become like Christ in his death. And then he says a very, very strange thing, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So he wants to know Christ. And actually, the, the, word, the, the Greek word to know doesn't mean some intellectual knowledge. He's using the, the word that would be described uh, as the knowledge that a husband has of his wife. That is the intimate way that, God, that um, Paul wants to know Christ. That is the intimate way that we should long to know Christ. It might be awkward imagery for us to think about, but that is what he is saying. We should long to know him as and even more intimately than a husband knows his own wife. He wants to know him, know the power of his resurrection. He doesn't want to know him as some historical figure. He knew about Jesus as a historical figure when he was persecuting people who believed in him. He knew the facts about Jesus. He knew what Christians claimed. He knew that Jesus was uh, a Jew who had been crucified, uh, who, who'd lived um, uh, and had preached this message for about three years and was killed when he was about 33 years old. He knew the facts. He wants to know Jesus Christ, not as a historical figure, not just as a historical figure, but as the risen alive God of the universe. 
He wants to know the power of His resurrection. He wants to be raised with Christ. And this is what has happened to us. If we believe in Christ, this is what has happened. The Spirit of God has made us alive. The same Spirit that raised Christ Jesus from the grave lives in us. And it is this Spirit that raised us from the dead and that lives in us now. That's what it is to know the power of His resurrection. He wants, to, he wants to know that. He wants to share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So not only are we spiritually identified with Christ in his life, death, and resurrection. No, he wants to experience what it is to suffer for the gospel. He doesn't care what, it, he doesn't care what, what comes of his life. And we know that from what he said um, in Philippians 1. You know, to live is Christ and to die is gain. To follow Christ will mean suffering. It will and we may come into danger because of our faith. And we may be put to death because of our faith. Paul is saying, what does it matter? What joy to be identified with Christ in this way. That by any means I may attain the resurrection of the dead. And he's not saying that he's not certain. He's not, because you couldn't be uncertain after what he's just said. What he's saying is, what, what a demonstration of God's grace that someone like me could spend eternity in God's presence. He is certain that this will happen, but it is a, it's an incredible demonstration of the grace of God. We have the incredible privilege as Christians that we have certainty and the reason we have certainty is because God will not reject Jesus. And if we're identified with Jesus, then we won't be rejected. If God has before him Christ's criminal record that is completely empty, complete, it's just a blank page, then there's no way we can be rejected. We will be raised with Christ. We will have eternity with him. And what a demonstration of God's grace that he would take people like you, like me, like Paul, like everyone that has gone before us and everyone who'll believe after us. And do we actually long to know Christ this much? Does our love for him make our love for everyone else look like hate? I was talking with, a, with one of my uh, best friends, Andrew. Um, I have to mention his name because he listens to the podcast and apparently Dave stole a quote from him and he was pretty cross about it. So, <laughs> so, so Andrew, uh, if you're listening, hi. So Andrew is about to be um, married and um, I'm getting married in a bit longer than, uh, he's, he's getting married in a month and I'm getting married in, in a bit longer than that. But he was saying that one of the incredible things he's learned about engagement is that it's really, really shown him how little he loves Christ because he longs for the day that he'll be married um, to uh, Lauren, his fiance. And he realized, I don't long as much for the day when I will be with Christ in eternity. And yet, this is what Paul is calling us to. This is what God calls us to. That surpassing joy that we have in Christ that makes our joy in all other things look like nothing. 
We are completely identified with Christ in every way, and this should produce a joy in us that makes everything look like loss. Everything that blinds us to Christ look like loss. There's, there's an, a missionary from the, uh, uh, an American missionary from the 50s called Jim Elliott, and his story is very, very famous. Um, his story is very famous because within a couple years of moving to Ecuador to preach the gospel to an unreached people group um, whose language he didn't really, his, his, his um, missionary friends didn't uh, really understand, and they, they, but they were so um, consumed with this joy in Christ that they thought, we're going to go and preach the gospel no matter what happens. And they, they, it started to look like there was fruit, but there was a, there was a, a misunderstanding, there, there, there was a power conflict, there was, something went on, and Jim Elliott and a few of his friends were killed. I think he was 28 when he died. Now, if this is not putting your joy in Christ and in nothing else, I don't know what is, apart from a much bigger, but from, from another part of his story that is not told as much. That's the story of his wife, Elizabeth Elliot, who only died a couple years ago. After her husband had been killed, she returned to that tribe, to that unreached people group, and preached the gospel again, and saw many, many come to Christ. Now, if that isn't placing your entire joy and everything in Christ and counting everything else as loss, I don't know what, what is. And maybe we'll come into those situations. Maybe that God will call us to those um, situations. But maybe for us, this is going to look like going to work tomorrow, wanting nothing more than to renounce our old priorities, our old, um, what we placed our value in, and to want to know and experience Christ more. And we can do all things for His sake because there is no higher treasure or joy than to know Him and we can be certain that we will never be rejected or condemned because he will never reject or condemn Jesus. So finally, and I promise this is, this is a real finally, not like Paul's where he fools us. Are our lives as Christians, are our lives as a church marked by humble joy in Jesus Christ because we know that we have nothing but him? Do we long for nothing more than to, be, than to be known by Christ and to know Him? Our highest joy is in Him, and it starts by realizing that He traded places with us so that we could be declared righteous. So if we are believers, our lives should never be the same. We should meditate on the truth of the gospel and make it our constant prayer to know Christ and the joy that is found in Him. And for non-believers, if you are a non-believer or if a non-believer is uh, listening to the podcast, are you not sick of anxiously toiling to prove yourself? Does it not genuinely make life miserable to, try, to constantly be trying to prove yourself and better yourself? 
Do you not see the beauty and freeing truth of the gospel? That Christ traded places so that we could be reconciled with God. This is the true highest joy. And I'm going to finish by um, a quote from Charles Spurgeon, a, a Baptist uh, pastor from, uh, from England who, who lived in the um, 19th century. And, and this is my prayer um, for, for us as a church, for me personally, for, and uh, hopefully this will be your prayer to know this joy. As what Spurgeon says, he says, if Christ be glorious, it is all the heaven I ask for. If he shall be king of kings and lord of lords, let me be nothing. If he shall but reign and every tongue call him blessed, it shall be bliss for me to know it. And if I may be but as one of the withered roses which lie in the path of his triumph, it shall be my paradise. Let's pray.